It's going to be a barn burner. Oh, okay. Can you tell by the sound of my voice? Um, yeah, you sound very enthusiastic. <laughs> like I'm ready to burn a barn. Like you're ready to burn a damn barn. I think I think this show is going to go for longer than we think. And I think it's going to get very spicy. It could be a barn burner. A barn burner is like a barn burner. Bigger. But bigger. Uh-oh. How did that happen? What did you do? Me? Yeah. I just got here. <laughs> it's always your fault. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please subscribe, and don't forget that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. Speaking of shows, yesterday we just had another fiery episode of the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert. Pascal pointed his vitriol at the legacy of Black fraternities. If you watch the rebroadcast and want to be a part of the live segment of the show, call in or have your questions read on air. There's only one way, and that is to become a patron. It's simple, it's cheap, and it goes a long way to make sure we can continue to bring you the fun yet informative programming you enjoy. With Patreon, you'll get access to all the champagne rooms, past and present, as well as movie nights, the Mau Mau Air Hour, and more. Also, if you haven't checked it yet, Pascal was a guest on Daniel Bester and David Davidson's American Prestige pod, giving a very thorough history of Haiti and also giving some context to its current state post the assassination of Jovenel Moise. Wherever you are listening or viewing, there should be links in the comments or the description to that episode as well. I'm sure super producer MT Toussaint will be dropping some links in the live chat as well. Speaking of MT, let's bring her in to tell you a little bit about the TIR merch. Please welcome the faceless voice of reason, MT Toussaint. Hello, hello. I'd like to do a host acknowledgement. What is I'd like that? to acknowledge our host tonight, Jason Miles. Someone has already trashed your fit. I just want to say 
you on your Camilo flow. It's very cold where you are. It is. Uh, it is very cold where I am, and usually I do change, but uh, I went with my neighbor on a dog walk, and it's uh, we're, we're suffering a little bit of the storm that is engulfing Northern California, where we don't have snow here. It is unseasonably cold for February in Mexico. So I apologize for looking like every dad going to the grocery store in the evening. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Kanye would approve. Uh, we don't have insulation in these houses because it's warmer more than it is cold. We have like two months a year where it's quote unquote cold. That's what I have to say. Someone's, here, I'm, I'm going to put this comment on the screen. Someone says, Jason looks like a homeless New England skater. <laughs> Jesus. People. Well, Jason is warm. He just happens to not be wearing the merch tonight. Oh! But on other night, when Jason is cold, he wears... The hoodies. Oh. T-I-R hoodies. Looking fresh. With oh. symbol. I want to get one of those. wonder. Yeah, man. I do, too. You know who has the oh, red one? Is, is Marcus from Left Flank Vets has a red one, and he wears it on Marcus. here. Yes. He has the I'm last... He has the last zip-up of the red one. There's only... He has the last one in existence. We only did one run of those. The smiling faces of Pascal. Kuba on a t-shirt. Kuba and Jean. Get Kuba on your mouse pad and have people say, who is the scary Eastern European fellow? That's right. That's right. And we've got Afro um ang sorry. Sorry. <laughs> we have Anglo pessimism. Anglo pessimism. Wrong, wrong channel. Please. Wrong channel. Don't get it twisted. I was at the university where Afro pessimism jumped off. And uh, I was walking around there like the lambdas at the campus. Revenge of the Nerds. Beautiful lambdas. I was walking around looking for trouble. But I think I was in a different department where that, that, those gentlemen. Um, wow. This is. What's the cheapest thing you got? Oh god. Look, we have to bring in the whole crew because this is a whole show. So first and foremost, please welcome co-host the man of the Mau Mau Hour, the Pascal Robin. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M2 Sun. Hello, hello. Uh, Pascal coming off a very, very spicy episode um, of the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert. That will be an audio-only podcast that will drop this Sunday. How do you think he did? Man, it was a great conversation. Uh you know, usually the format for the Mama Hour is that I give a monologue for a half hour, then we take questions. We went a full hour 
and I really appreciated that Jack kind of pushed back in certain things he disagreed with, and we we, we came to a mutuality of understanding. It was a good good dialogue. But, and uh, that was that was the first show you produced. The whole thing you did everything. That was the, the that was truly, truly, the. Let's give a shout out to that. Truly, Speaking. Where's the rest of the bench? The rest of the bench. We have a, we have a deep bench. I'm very deep I'm very bench. proud of the TIR team. Batting batting second. You know him as everyone's favorite history professor at Missouri State University. Mean Gene Bajlan. Hello, Jason. Hello, Pascal. Hello, M. Tucson. Hello. How are you all doing this evening? Are you feeling good? Uh, I'm feeling good because if this was a baseball lineup, I don't know if you're a baseball. Okay, person. okay, okay. Don't don't talk about these American sports. You know. If this was a cricket game, <laughs> no, I don't want to hear about it. You know, batting nope. third, like nope, my favorite nope, nope, baseball nope, nope, player of all time, Will Clark. <laughs> Deep State Cuba. Deep Damn. State. Hello. I didn't see you there. <laughs> cool, but long time off the on the screen before you've been on the screen, man. I feel like it's yeah. been a year since we were on the same same screen time. I, I mean, um, this feels true, but uh, I felt that uh, everybody would be more comfortable if uh, you know I limited myself to White Guy Wednesdays. You know, stayed within the care. Can, can, can I tell? Can I tell? Can I tell look, the look, look, what look, you actually just, said? Look, can I just make one pick? One point here. Uh, just so people know, it is uh, it is Jason who is implementing this new policy of segregation on TIR. <laughs> but he assures me, all TIR shows us they may be separate, but they certainly are all equal. <laughs> I look. I am enjoying the colored flow that Pascal uh, and Toussaint and I have when we do shows together. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and we will continue, of course, to do that. Uh, we don't do it on purpose because, as you know, I don't see colors. It's batting cleanup. He's got the, the, the eyes of a dog. Just no color whatsoever. No. I... And I hate all people equally. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. If you put those two things together, you know what you have? Anti-racism. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of anti-racism, it's everybody's favorite uh, black man. <laughs> He's batting cleanup by Kevin Mitchell. Let's just go over that 88 Giants roster. Derek Varn. Who the fuck is Kevin Mitchell? Kevin Mitchell <laughs> played right field for the San Francisco Giants in third base. And uh, bat, batted fourth behind Will Clark in the late 80s before Barry ah, Bonds. I pretty much only know it, only know 90s Atlanta Braves baseball reference. So all you know is Dale Murphy, Dale Murphy, Dale Murphy, Donald Justice, Dale Murphy. Who played for the Braves? Dale Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> good Vince potential, Lowe. a good potential name for White Guy Wednesdays. This is segregation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, you know, so one of the patrons sent me a message and he said, uh, 
Jason, I got an idea for a name. He called it the Alabaster. What did he call it? <laughs> he called it the, Al the Alabaster. I'll have to find it. Say, what did you say? The Alabaster disaster. <laughs> it was something along those lines. Pretty good. It was something along those lines. Yes, Kevin Mitchell was on the 86 Mets. I believe he scored the tying run in that game when they beat the uh, Red Sox to take it to the Thank you for the super chat. Yes, thank you very much for the super chat. All baseball trivia from 1980 to 1994 will be answered by me. After that, I just don't know. People so are trying to figure out where Cuba is based on his background. You don't want to know where Cuba is. Dun, dun, dun. Or, or what he's doing. The Anglo-Pessimist Power Hour. This is a good name for the show. The Anglo-Pessimist Power Hour. Well, 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 you know, we've created our own separate uh, Facebook chat, which we call White Power Chat. So perhaps... Oh, oh, no. Why would you... Why would you say that? Dude. I thought it was the White Flower Chat and you guys were baking... Damn it. <laughs> what white power chat? It's not that's not gonna work. It's white always the Kurd who puts who puts the Aryan in the show. That's all we gotta say. Yeah, but my notion of as you discovered today, Von, my 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 notion of Aryan supremacy is wildly different from what Americans feel. Yeah, no one that, that's true. <laughs> Someone says Wigan with Whitey. Wigan with Whitey? I don't think Wigan with Whitey is acceptable. I don't think we can do that. I think that is going to have to be a no. I'm going to have to veto Wigan with Whitey. No, my brother. Because that just sounds <laughs> <laughs> too close. Like, uh, yep. So like shagging with Sherry. <laughs> White boy, yeah. White boy Wednesdays is what they what was the joke. Can I, Cooper? Can I tell people what you said to me when you like called? Oh, absolutely not. I've okay. <laughs> you may you may try to clear it with me in the private chat. Okay. <laughs> should have me cracking the fuck up. Fifty Shades of Beige. Fifty Shades of Beige is awesome. That's not bad. I like that. I like that. The How about the invasion? Jim Crow corner? Jim Crow corner. Complete with crows. Gluten-free Wednesdays is the perfect name for the show. It doesn't work, though, because we have a black person on the show in C. Dagman. <laughs> we have an, a an African who is in perpetual struggle against the state. You've never seen Derek Varn and Sean King at the same place at the same time. Much like Humpty Hump and Shock G. Exactly. Sean King is Derek Varn's Humpty Hump. I'm the one that says. <laughs> Just drop him in the biscuit. Just drop him in the biscuit. <laughs> <This> poor man. <laughs> Even growing the hair long doesn't help. <laughs> no. no, he's just Vaughn's just preparing to get his uh, his dreadlocks in. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he almost choked. 
Wow. The last thing I need is is white guy dreads. That is the absolute last Ooh. thing. Oh, Bro, that's, don't do that. We, we what's, what's, the thing, what, what's next to white guy dreads is like the worst thing you can have, Barn. <laughs> Hemp pants. Ooh. Hemp pants. <laughs> I just want to say before we do this show and uh, we all get canceled that... Uh, Everyone on the screen, despite what people may think, I appreciate uh, everybody on the screen. And I want to say a big thank you for being part of this show with me. Why are you specifying on the screen? Is that, I don't because understand. you are a woman. No, Thanks. my God. <laughs> okay. Sugar, sugar, oh. sugar, sugar. Oh. I'm, I was worried that it was going to be an all racisms episode, but we've got one sexism on the board. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> <laughs> well, that means you too. You're technically on the screen if you were to turn your camera on. If. I think you should do the show with the with the MF Doom mask like you did at the live show. Oh, that'd be cool. That would be dope. I think you should do that every so often. Every so often. Every so often, as a treat. As a, yeah, you should. Do that or, so or we can get um, masks of the rest of us printed for MT. She'll <laughs> so appear like one other person, and you know. <laughs> The first 10 seconds of any episode are like, which one's the imposter? Someone says, Jason, are you dying? Why in the point seat? And every so often, you should always thank the people that work with you. I, I appreciate everyone that uh, is a part of this show. It, I, I cannot do it alone. Um, I need everyone on the screen. I learn from everybody on the screen. So, And that being said, I say that because, and you guys don't know this, because I number the episodes a little differently. We've done over 500 episodes of TII. Jesus. That's a lot of TII. That's a lot of hot ass. Well, you know, let's do it. October 19th, 2019. It started with one rant about Kanye West. (laughs) I don't understand why that guy keeps holding himself back. Let Kanye be Kanye. In Kanye, we trust. So let's do it. Let's let's let's. Uh, let's well, let's okay. get into the show because I know Gene Bajlan has a lot to say about this, and I know uh, pretty much everybody on the screen has a lot to say about this. You know why I know this? Because in our pre-show meeting, which went for like two hours, everyone had a lot to say about this. Anti-war slash anti-imperialist are labels that get thrown around by many left circles but are there origins in leftism is simply being anti-war a left position can anti-imperialism become an inverted form of american exceptionalism in this current epoch of instant gratification how does that infect our political visions for the left to help broaden this discussion i bring you the entire tir family jean bajlan What's up? Uh, well, yeah. So uh, we're talking about the uh, question of the anti-war movement. And guys, I've been watching a lot of. St- I've been watching some of the mainstream n- uh, news, uh, as Pascal knows. I listen to uh, MSNBC, though, so that you don't have to. Uh, and it is truly a terrible, 
terrible station. But there was some coverage of this uh, Rage Against the War Machine uh, event that took place in uh, Washington, D.C. And I don't really want to go on about like, um, I don't want to really go on about, you know, like, was it good? Was it bad? Whatever. Uh, you know, there were there were clearly very different elements there at that event. You had people like Chris Hedges there. You had uh, Tulsi Gabbard. You had Ron. Uh, you, you had, uh, you know, Marxist Leninist groups, LaRoucheites, far right people, et cetera, et cetera. It was an anti-war. Can you or Varn quickly explain what LaRoucheites are? Because I, I think people are saying that and, and a, lot, a lot of people know exactly what uh so LaRoucheites are followers of Lyndon LaRousse, who was a Trotskyist turned, I had no idea how to describe what he turned. He became a pusher of Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracies at one point. And there's been a kind of revival and interest in him, but also that cleans up a lot of his deliberate anti-communist rhetoric. Um, uh, and there was a lot of anti-communist rhetoric coming out of the, uh, of the LaRousse faction in the in the 80s and 90s in particular uh he may or may not have had influence on the reagan administration by selling the idea of the star wars project although it is unclear how much real effect he had uh his there are two organizations that that have ties to him uh explicitly larouche pact and the schiller institute the schiller institute itself um uh it's a big european thing um has uh, actually a fair amount of int weird support in china not from the chinese government but from uh, you know uh chinese industries and maybe some things adjacent to the government um interestingly like larouche pack people they do stuff like uh like stop the steel advocacy now when you talk about larucheites online on the far uh, on the left, you're talking about people who have done um, Marxist-Leninist LaRouche hybrid stuff. Uh, people who talk about mecha communism or MAGA communism, etc. Um, the so, Eurasianist, like Gumilev, kind of uh, uh, Eurasianist, um, Marxian slash Eurasian pan Eurasian nationalism combos. But the reason I mention it is because. Uh, there was a lot of pearl clutching online about uh, people cooperating with right-wing forces. And, you know, I think it's important to be uh, skeptical of cer certain elements uh, at these uh, anti-war rallies. But what Vaughn and myself had been discussing uh, about this is that people are getting mad at this anti-war movement for being a red-brown alliance when... The anti-war movement has always had this kind of quote-unquote red-brown character to it. Like people are being mad at the anti-war movement for being what it has always been, which has been has always attracted elements of the left and elements of the right, who for various reasons are attracted to war. I think Kuba wants to jump in here. Yeah you can think about the Quincy Institute as being the more genteel version of um, uh, the rally, right? It uh, brings together a lot of scholars from the left that have an unapologetically socialist um, perspective and project, but there's also um, isolationists, 
um, traditionalists as well. Um, for a while, the Cato Institute was um, the most anti-war um, organization that could be cited on mainstream news. Mm-hmm. So uh, the anti-war position is not one over which leftists have any kind of monopoly. So historic. One thing I wanted to say is I wanted to ask a question because just based on my familiarity with LaRoucheites and my experience with them, would it be fair and correct me if I'm wrong, please, to consider them a form of third positionist? Well, probably. I mean, the one thing with with LaRoucheism is that it's, there's so many things pushed in the LaRoucheite camp that it's hard to actually categorize it as one thing. There are definitely third third positionists who are LaRoucheites. There are also Eurasianists who are attracted to it, but there's also just pure anti-communist. It's, and then now you have communists who are back in it too. Its history is wild. It's also, if I'm quite frank, somewhat of a distraction. Like um, to get tied up in us talking about like LaRoucheism right now um, uh, is to to give certain subsections and subquarters of both the internet right and left more credit than they probably deserve. I mean, if you want to think um, of a comparison, like, and this is a very loose comparison, he's like someone like Alexander Dugan, in the sense that Alexander Dugan doesn't really have any like original thought, and he's not really a political influencer or innovator. He's just a, a communicator who has combined various strains of Russian, uh, uh, you know, pseudo-Marxist Eurasianism, elements of Christian fascism, and popularized them, and and promoted himself as being the innovator and the inventor, creating a myth. I think Lyndon LaRouche is probably a lot more that kind of uh, person. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know, but you know, a lot of these. Uh, fringe movements, and I say fringe not in a norm- normative sense, but in that they are condemned by the mainstream of politics general, they do attract all kinds of opportunists and political entrepreneurs who are seeking to construct a brand. But of course, at the same time, you know, I think there are people who have very, like someone like Chris Hedges, whatever you think of him, he was at the rally and he has a, you know, a strong principled stand uh, against war, and you may or may not disagree with him. So I think it, obviously it's a little unfair to condemn everyone at the rally as being pro-Russian, but certainly. There well, can like- I can I ask you guys this question, and then I want to definitely move on from this Larousse thing. I, you know, we just wanted to give a brief a brief explainer. Is is the appeal of something like a, the, the Larousse teaching have something to do with? There's so many, much like Alexander Dugan as well. There's so many people that just want to hear a living person talk about Marx. Well, LaRouche is dead, so. Oh, that's true. Um, recently, two years ago. Uh, uh, but it, and also, there's a lot of, the, whether LaRouche is pro or anti-Marx, depending, it depends on what text and what time period you've talked about. The only reason I know so much about this stuff and um, 
is because my trajectory towards the left is from the anti-war right. And like, I've been following people around what would become the Quincy Institute, like Andrew Basevich, who is a conservative thinker um, for a long time. And, and Basevich is not even a, he's hard to classify now. He's, he's the ex-general guy, right? Right. Yes. And his yeah. son died in the Iraq war. Um, he, he, uh, he has become much more, even receptive to sort of like left-wing justice arguments on communitarian grounds than, than uh, he was 10, 15 years ago. But I, you know, he, he's written for a whole lot of right-wing um, publications um, and he considers himself a conservative thinker. There's lots of people like that over at Quincy and there's lots of people like that in the Cato Institute. And, and I was associated with Justin Ramondo's group, antiwar.com, which was an explicit, had explicit ties to Pat Buchanan. So like, um, these are just things that, that there's a history in the U S and that history goes all the way back to the anti-imperialism league. And even if you want to go further to the opposition, the Polk and the Mexican American war where the coalitions were mixed, uh, what we what we it's hard to even call people before the civil war left or right but but a mixed group of people i mean some of the people who uh undermine polk's attempt to take all the way down to mexico city as part of the settlement of the mexican american war which is what he wanted to do were virulent racist and like uh, later aligned to confederacy and the anti-imperialist movement in the night um and the anti-imperialist league yes it had people like felix adler or, or uh, jane adams and william dean howells people part of the american liberal left uh, but it also had people like andrew carnegie well i mean i guess he's woke capital back in the day uh kind of the definition of it um uh the Glover. original Scrooge, the original Scrooge McDuck, right? Well, they, Glover, Glover, Cleveland, um, a bunch of former Confederates were part of it. Um, what it about is, Pitchfork, Bill Duggan. Yeah. The... <laughs> well, well, Pascal, you look like you wanted to add something to this. Yes, I mean the larger point here is, and I think it's really important to demonstrate is that just to sum it up is that. Anti-war, first of all, we need to make a distinction between being anti-war and anti-imperialist. We will get to that at some point. But being anti-war or anti-interventionalism has not been exclusively a left political project, particularly in the context of American history, going back to World War One in the 20th century, and even going you know, back before that, for long periods of time, the the, concert, the right wing or capitalist party was considered to be more less interested in intervention, and the the Democrats, for example, under Woodrow Wilson, under uh, FDR, under uh, uh, LBJ, under Kennedy, there was a time. I, I mean, I'm, I, I I don't my history doesn't go far that back go back that far in American history, but I remember when the saying was. Democrats start wars and Republicans end them. You know, I was Cuba's laughing because I'm sure he's he's worked with around people who actually remember when folks used to say that, because it was kind of the norm is that it was the Democrats who had this interventionist, internationalist kind of 
foreign policy and Republicans who didn't want to pay more taxes, who didn't want to pay for a military, were like, I'm not, why do I well, Let's have more nation building here at home. Exactly. The typical Pat Buchanan kind of like, let's build our own, you know, economic base, our economic factories. We don't need to get involved. And I think a perfect example of how the right embodies that type of thinking is with the contemporary libertarian movement that has long precedent in, in American politics. If you think about Rand Paul, or Ron Paul, excuse me, after 9-11, what exactly puts Ron Paul on the national stage? It was the debate, presidential debate, at the Republican primary between him and Rudy Giuliani. And the question was about war and foreign yep. policy, and Ron Paul knocked the question out the park and then literally gave life to a guy who was a backbencher politically for, for, for decades. And a, and a bunch of young people loved him after that. I remember my younger brother was like, I'm going to vote for Ron Paul. He yeah, was Ron super Paul was popular like a, in Georgia amongst amongst both, quote, liberals and 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 leftists. Do you, uh, well, do you remember, time. Derek, when he went on uh, Morton Downey Jr. show as the left? To yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. I mean, it, people forget that um, neoconservatism, which people seem to conflate with neoliberalism for good reasons, because neoconservatives are usually neoliberals, but not the, but not the reverse is not always true. Neoliberals are not always neoconservatives is that neoconservatism were the pro intervention faction of, of the Republican party. A lot of them were, were either defect. Some of them were Trotskyists. Most of them were Skip Jackson Democrats. Um, and if you don't know what that is, I suggest you look it up. Um, and they flipped sides because they, they saw, you know, the end of the cold war as a way to build up this massive industrial, um, military industrial complex issue. And they mostly have been linked to the democratic party from like the 1940s to the, the end of the 1970s. But even, um, the Democratic Party's, you know, lackluster, milk toast ass response to the Second Iraq War um, really was opportunistic. And if we forget how many people who, like, A, didn't listen to when Obama said he was pro the Afghan part of that, and B, um, how many people we had to give that were given a pass who became anti war, you know, in 2003, 2004, but who had been for it just a few months sometimes before um when things looked more when the when the mood of the country made it look like there was a large support for the war um, well let's uh, let, let me just jump in here, here to give like a little bit of context because i think we have to like definitely circle back to the historical memory of the anti-war movement leading up to the obama administration but i think one thing that people really need to consider is if you look at the paradigms and perhaps Cuba can speak to this uh, uh, better than I can, but if you look at the paradigm of American foreign policy, particularly uh, during the Nixon administration, that paradigm was primarily driven by a, uh, by a you know, classical realist approach to um, foreign affairs. And, you know, one of the ironies of people, you know, posting that video of John Meshmeyer like saying that, like, actually, this is, uh, you know, this war is America's fault is that 
you know, it kind of begs the question of why do we even give a shit about how Russia feels about these things anyway, because Ukraine is not their country. Well, it makes sense from his perspective because he was a neo-realist and, you know, the world was uh, the world was divided into spheres of influence and you didn't mess too much with one guy uh, with the Soviet sphere of influence. And you definitely made sure if anybody messed around in your sphere of influence, you absolutely pound him. Neo-realists like Meshmeyer, they're pissed off. Because by going into the Russian sphere of influence, we're annoying them, so we can't ha have them as an ally against the Chinese, as we as they he, as they see them as the big competitor. But I think there is an there is, especially from the Reagan administration onwards, an injection of ideology, in the sense the belief that the United States doesn't need to be realist, but can impose a particular global order on the world, a capitalist global order. It's not about learning to live with the Soviets as the realists had told people, as Henry Kissinger had told people, right? Henry Kissinger's like, get used to it because they're going to be there, right? But a belief that you could concretely transform the, form the world through political action and impose your will. And that that is the kind of root uh, 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 this kind of root hint towards this interventions in Cuba. Do well, you, you want to jump yeah. in? The um, I think that what you're pointing to is the difference between a foreign policy which is fundamentally grounded on um, a geopolitical strategy that is material balances of forces and what um, planning would look like for, for an actual conflict versus uh, one which has this crusader missionary impulse towards transforming um transforming and ordering the planet um according to some righteous plan and the pivot does appear to be the um the reagan administration although that was always part of the kind of missionary zeal in the liberal interventionism that you could trace all the way back to Woodrow Wilson. It's uh, almost like Reagan took that perspective and laundered it for the right. Um, and then it turned out that more so than um, careful geopolitics or any type of fiscal isolationism, you just have the fusion of the war wings of both parties. Yeah, can I, I want to talk a little bit about like the realist versus the paleoconservative versus the neoconservative a bit? Because I think this is one, there's a conflation often between the paleoconservatives and the realist. And that's like Pat Buchanan and George Cannon are not the same person. Um, and they're not, they don't have the same factions in, in the grand uh, spectrum. But what I think is interesting and this does relate to the war now is that in specific in the relationship to the fall of the soviet union the new american century people and the libertarians actually won out over the george kennans and the and the kissingers and people who thought that okay russia should be immediately incorporated into nato um and and all this now now the paleoconservative wing of the party at that time had no penchant for 
for war with with China the way it kind of does now. Um, and it is interesting because that unites the the paleoconservatives with the with the realists in a way that actually is historically not the case. Um, I was not when I was in the anti-war right, I had no interest in George Kennan, for example. Um, but I bring all this up because who won in that debacle that began really it was consolidated under Reagan. It isn't fully consolidated until the end of the George H.W. Bush administration and the way they handle um, the response to the end of the Soviet Union. And then it is fully consolidated in the foreign policy of, of, of Little Bush and George W. Bush, whose reputation on... In uh, American liberal circles being rehabilitated is something that truly disgusts me because even when I was a right winger, I would spit on his picture. That's all I have well, to say about that. But yeah, I think that's a that's an important point. Is that at least within quote unquote mainstream politics, you know, often liberalism has been at the vanguard of uh, you know an ideological driven uh, desire. To, or at least ide creating ideological justifications for overseas militarism and expansion, whereas often it was the it was the conservatives who pursued a quote unquote realist strategy. Because you know, obviously, I think there are profound problems, epistemological problems, with the entire preconception of the um, uh, uh, of realism. But it is a kind of technocratic uh, approach to dealing with like international anarchy well i think that one another way of framing the distinction between the two parties in the past is that um the democrats felt that american global hegemony american imperialism required a developmental and um universal uh mission as part of its mandate while the Republican variant was willing to cut corners. And it's like, look, we've got Germany, we've got Japan. Why are we thinking about some of these other places? We can save money. And um, we've always had backwaters in you know, Indian country, if you pardon the expression. I would argue, though, but at a certain point in the 20th century, post-World War II, we start to see the convergence between the Republicans and Democrats in understanding the importance of the global sphere under Cold War exegesis. That that becomes kind of like a bipartisan consensus that, you know, with the newly developing independent post-colonial nations in the global south, that it's bad for capitalism to have Soviet expansion in these markets that can be very profitable and that we're going to need to sell our wares to. So we've got to be able to rehabilitate our image domestically to make sure that we're, you know, IBM and Coca-Cola can do business in, you know, Sri Lanka, you know, uh, the Congo or wherever else. And that's, as we know, and we've talked about amongst ourselves, this is part of the whole civil rights exodus that becomes American dipl diplomatic prerogative number one and as well. But one thing that I think is important for us, and we're going so fast here, is to talk about left, the intellectual origins 
of left, the intellectual textual origins of left anti-imperialism, i.e. Lenin and precursors, how that materialized in the United States, how the popular front was a betrayal of that, and the third part, how the Vietnam War casts this illusion in the mind of Americans to this day that challenging war and imperialism is a left project. Yeah, I think that's actually a very crucial point. I was going to bring that up um, uh, because the McGovern and McCarthy campaigns were were anti-war and they get associated with the new left because of the utter fiasco of 60 of 68 uh, of the 68 Democratic Convention being what it was that um, it kind of hid the fact that uh, you know the, the the actually the the containment was uh, being pushed by this. There's a there's an attempt now by both actually by both right wingers and left wingers to try to like use the JFK assassination to to uh, to rewrite what JFK was and JFK um, really seemed intent on not just proving that he was a cold warrior and was a good responsible overseer of the mil- of the military industrial co- complex after Eisenhower but that he would maybe even outdo the military on it and then seems to have kind of backed away right before his assassination maybe like there are some hints that that indicate that that was a possibility that there was going to be tensions with the with parts of the um the the cold war complex there but that has obscured a lot of this and i think the i think going back to the the imperialism debates in Europe, which have to do with Lenin stands on national liberation, and then the debates between um, what would become the Bolsheviks, actually, uh, and Lenin and the Second International and Kalski's writings on colonials on colonialism, some of which are quite bad. I mean, I'm not going to lie; they're almost pro-colonial. Um, and then you get into the debates between imperialism and ultra-imperialism. Um, in 19 uh in response to 1914 when the SPA day uh under the uh votes for the war bonds kowski sits on his hands it's actually a myth that he voted for the war bonds he didn't he said he sat on his hands though to not divide the party as a good democratic centralist um thus allowing for no opposition from the leadership to and for it to appear unanimous uh, he then later leaves the SPD Day himself, but at that point, he's divided the international movement. Interestingly, the U.S. Uh, socialists, which is which is part of this international, the Second International, actually make the right vote. They're one of the few, um, and we can have all kinds of critiques of the SPA and like it being totally. You know, they're being weird racialist and even proto-Nazis and factions of it. They weren't the dominant faction. Don't let anyone convince you with that. But they were there. But the, the, the Americans actually do vote um, with the uh, with what, you know, the Bolsheviks would say would be the right position. And that that actually leads to the stuff that sends Debs to jail. Um, 
And so this is this is all tied together and because of um the the opposition to the war being tied you know first to the socialists and later when the communist party becomes really after the socialists decline rapidly in the 19 in the early 1920s the communist the communists start representing all these interests and the communists also oppose the war and then and then in the in the end of third periodism um and in the popular front the opposition is dropped to fight fascism um and that puts communists in a weird position in the 1950s and 60s, because, uh, you know, we've talked about how the Communist Party of America was really supporting the civil rights movement, was really supporting a lot of, uh, a, like, if you were a black intellectual and you needed a job, um, the Communist Party would actually help you get that in the 1950s and 60s and and give you, and like often party funds were actually paying for people's, you know, salaries. But that put them in a weird position when they're trying to advocate for the civil rights movement and and push these people uh, in a front with the Democratic Party during particularly the Kennedy and Johnson administration. So they kind of have to talk in a both both sides of the of of their mouths in regards to the war because obviously they can't support the Vietnam War, right? And that's actually that that position leads to a lot of the splitting in the in the Communist Party. Um, that's actually when you start seeing. Like the Maoists leave, and, and the and the Revolutionary Communist Party, um, you know that we now associate with Bob Avakian, although he didn't found it, was 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 born from this time period. It leads to a bunch of splits that causes the Communist Party USA to decline in size. Uh, I think in 1947, it's 75,000 uh, people, which per capita is larger than any socialist movement other than the SPA in like 19. 19- 14. Um, so the second largest uh, socialist movement in U.S. history, uh, particularly when you adjust for population size. Um, and by the by like 1975, it's like 5,000 people. Um, so it, it the, the collapse is, is kind of huge over the anti-war stuff and trying to figure out how they deal with the fact that the popular front puts them in league with a party fighting a war against communists in Vietnam. And also like this gets even more accelerated and confused when you have Nixon in a, in a brilliant uh, bit of real politic, accelerate the Sino-Soviet split by reaching out to China. Um, so Cuba? those two things, you know, Cuba the analysis one. Go for it. Coops. The, I, I don't really think that there's, um, much to add there the um that the vietnam vietnam was a watershed and not just for the um the creation of this uh myth of the anti-war left uh and the breakup of um any kind of trans-sectarian unity uh in the american left but also the failure of that war creates um what's called Vietnam syndrome, this alleged condition um, of hesitancy and reluctance to use force um, in the part of um, American 
military leaders, especially the uniformed uh, staff. That, but what it actually does is create a 10, 20 year opening um, for the reform and um, technological transformation of the United States military away from what was still a conscript-based force in Vietnam to a smaller, much more professional, much more lethal, much more technologically driven um, force. In some ways... Much uh, less politically accountable. Much less politically accountable. Uh, in a lot of ways, from purely the perspective of um, military technology, doctrine, techniques, it was defeat in Vietnam that forced the, a generational change, the creation of again, a new model army and a new paradigm for, um, for uh, global militaries. And we find ourselves in like the, the end game of that um, technological condition because the edge that being the first to transform that way offered the United States together with its overwhelming geopolitical position is no longer um, available. You don't have the same uh, concentration of force in a single state and a more multipolar distribution of power will get you uh, a more challenging environment in which to try to maintain some kind of imperial um, hegemony. Well, I want to I want to kind of fast forward to to um, actually. Go, let me just pick up on on one thing there, and this is also when um, it, it's in that kind of environment that arguments. Um, against U.S. intervention in a particular war um, or as a categorical principle might play in to the um, expansionist imperial regional ambitions of other actors. And I recall when uh, as late as um, the, you know, 2008, 2012, if you were anti-war, the worst that anybody could say about you is you were a David Kucinich type um, patsy, you know, um, a hippie, uh, a loon. Um, Dennis Kucinich. Uh, Dennis Kucinich, yeah, sorry. Um, a beta cuck, if you will, um, a soy boy. Um, the, and now, since the en entry of Trump into politics, uh, it's become a matter of treason. Right. You have accusations all the time. This person's working for the Russians. This person's working for the Chinese. How much Assad money are you getting? Um, and I think that that reflects not just a change domestically in uh, U.S. politics, but also the dawning realization that other countries can and do push back in this uh, international environment. And they're very well, maybe... Um, attempts by them to do exactly the type of uh, hearts and minds work that was the pride and joy of the United States throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, you get hearts and minds yourself. Well, one thing I wanted to to, to kind of uh, focus on was to like circle back to 
was the anti-war movement during the Bush administration. Because I think especially for people of my generation, that was an extremely formative political experience uh, for us. And I definitely think it some, uh, I mean, I assume in the United States though, it seems to have cemented this view that the anti-war, you know, the anti-war position was a left position and that what's going on now with this current uh, coalition of left and right forces is something atypical. But it strikes me that you had those same people back in the day doing, uh, you know, uh, Alex Jones, Pat Buchanan. They were at those rallies. The difference between that period, however, is A, I think the, the Iraq war was very easy to oppose, right? It was just it was just like naked imperial aggression, right? That's why Obama was opposing the Iraq war, not the Afghanistan war where you could make an argument that, uh, well, the Afghans harbored someone who attacked us, and to a normie, that sounds reasonable. But Iraq just couldn't be made to sound reasonable. And so you had like a vast influx of anti-Bush liberals into this movement that kind of swamped the core constituency of it. And I think, you know, like Rachel Maddow was uh, attacking the Rage Against the War Machine rally, uh, but that's because these things get used for internal party political issues, right? Uh, this rally now, the anti-war movement is seen as being beneficial to the Republican Party, whereas in, uh, uh, you know, 2006, the anti-war movement was co- uh, co-opted um, by the Democratic Party and eventually the Obama campaign, who were able to delude people into thinking that Obama's position was a principled anti-war position, when in fact, Obama's position was a, a disagreement over imperial strategy, and more specifically, his desire to reorientate politi- uh, military and political forces uh, towards uh, 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 combating China, an effort which ended in disaster as he was dragged back into the Middle East with the uh, rise of ISIS and ended in humiliation with TPP being dumped at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. So let's not forget that Obama actually killed the anti-war movement that was burgeoning under Bush as well. But we got a, we got a, we got a super chat. Super chat from Chris Morlock. We had people at the rally successful enough to get national coverage. Worst opponents were the trots who monopolized the quote unquote anti-war brand. The state department socialists haven't mentioned this. Mm. Well, maybe exactly. I can uh, kind of address that obliquely, picking up um, off of Gene the <clears throat> and uh, Pascal's comment about the demobilization of the anti-war movement by Barack Obama. I remember um, it was actually kind of an eerie parallel to george w bush telling people that if they wanted to support the war in iraq and the fight against terror they should just go shopping at the mall uh and similarly after obama's election rather than maintaining the organizations that had delivered his votes um as pressure mechanisms that could have been used against the party or against republicans um those groups were just wound down or um folded into and the standard Democratic Party uh, apparatus. And 
I think that what um, Gene was pointing out that there was an influx of these anti-Bush liberals into the, the anti-war movement. The interests of the Democratic Party and the anti-war movement, co um, uh, they aligned around getting rid of George W. Bush since the war in Iraq was so heavily personalized uh, around him. But once Obama's in power, then from the Democratic perspective, well, the interests change. And the same people who came in opportunistically and often got promoted within organizations because they could deal with the Democratic Party. They could get uh, resources. They could tell you who to mobilize for. They, um, they had the glamour of success and access on them. Well, some of them got pulled into the apparatus. Some of them got pulled into the Obama White House. And the rest of them went home, leaving um, organizations more hollowed out than, um, than buttressed. Thoughts, Vaughn? One of the things I have to, to say about this is that the when we talk about these scenarios, we often don't mention where the working class is because I'm going to say something that's going to hurt a lot of people's feelings, but they're not relevant. And not because what the working class thinks doesn't matter, but because they have absolutely no effect on foreign policy. And that's been true of all these protest movements too, although to some degree... In the Vietnam War, you do have a real ability to affect the war machine in a real way because there are so many conscript working class members of the army, which they made sure, and they being the military industrial complex, never happened again, right? Like... The, the movement, and this was supported by libertarians too, which makes any particular governmental fact, like trying to tell the, uh, trying to tell the story of like the pro and anti-war movement through the factions of American politics leads to all kinds of incoherence. You have, you have uh, trots and Maoists supporting different sides of the same conflicts at different times. And I could go through the specific organizations, but I don't feel like it's worth the time. Um, you have, uh, you have a massive anti-war movement um, in in the United States, which has massive rallies, rallies the size of which uh, we have not seen since then. And I mean this in the 2000s. Um, the largest rally technically probably that ever happened in the United States was against the Iraq war. And I believe it was in 2006. It mattered nary a bit. And what, but people were able to feel like that there was an elite sea change that was favoring them in an anti-war position. And I'll give you an example of that. We, uh, Neil Ferguson, you know, Mr. America is not imperialist enough. It needs a colonial department so it could be a proper imperialist. Um, endorsed uh, Barack Obama and turned against him in 2012. And I mean, he's British. Who, who, who fucking cares what he wants? But the, in 2008, he supported him. And it seemed clearly that there is a large faction of the military industrial planning complex between the UK and the US who wanted to make sure that they had a scapegoat for what happened in the Iraq war. Um, they, I mean, I think, I think that's really an important point. I think a lot of 
quote unquote anti-war people for the best of reasons get duped by people or misunderstand people when, when they are anti-war and that like their anti-war position may not be a one based on principle but may be based uh, on a disagreement of uh, imperial tactics like for example people lauding Tulsi Gabbard as an anti-war activist war on terror literal you know literal soldier Tulsi Gabbard is a peacenik no Tulsi Gabbard has a different idea for what American imperial policy should be so you know she opportunist uh, uh, you know she as a political opportunist she uses the anti-war movement for her political end the right wing of the Republican Party that is you know uh, complaining about this war and saying we shouldn't be fighting in Ukraine it, their issue is not American imperialism per se but they have a difference of opinion on what an uh, American imperial strategy should be ergo they use the anti-war movement so the anti-war movement just as the Obama administration, uh, you know, the Democrats used the anti-war movement, uh, you know, up to Barack Obama's um, election. So, too, don't be surprised that elements of the political right during a Democratic administration are going to make use of the anti-war movement to buttress and support their own domestic political agenda, as well as their own uh pet projects in uh, American imperial policy. Well, the one question that we could, um, we could introduce to sort of divide the, um, the part of the right that's, um, or, or other incumbents like uh, Tulsi Gabbard that oppose the conduct of uh, U.S. imperialism is, uh, as opposed to its its very foundation, is that question, like to what extent and how do these different uh, political orientations feel that the U.S. must govern uh, the planet? The one reason why Neil Ferguson could endorse somebody like Barack Obama is because of the bipartisan, transatlantic, cosmopolitan, neoliberal. Um, it's not even a conspiracy. It's just an open agreement, an intellectual uh, confluence towards a uh, neoliberal internationalist order with the United States at its apex. Uh, Obama believed in it. So even if it might be the, the military might be less well fed under his administration or a particular conflict might come to an end, um, at least it's a safe pair of hands, um, unlike, say, Bernie Sanders or, as we saw later, Donald Trump. Can I ask us to maybe deal with, however, the anti-imperialism arguments, because one of the things I've been very frustrated with about the Marxist left is that there are about five different theories of anti-imperialism that you have that come after Lenin. Um, you have 
linen, the linen uh, car and hybrid position that also ties in a little bit of like uh, the non-Marxist Hobbes uh, critique of imperialism, Hobson critique of imperialism. Um, but you also have, and and ties in parts of Hilferding too. Um, uh, the, but there's also a sense in which like after Lenin dies and after World War II, um, there are lots of different theories around imperialism. For example, in the Chinese Communist Party in the 1920s, you start having uh, discussions about anti-imperialism of class versus proletarian nation status. All right. And they base this off of very loosely, admittedly, off of Lenin's arguments around national liberation. Um, and sometimes that gets brought in. So you have like third worldist uh who will revive some of these arguments um now i'm not saying this to discredit that argument but i will actually say the other people who made proletarian nation arguments were literally the Mussoliniite fascist for italy um so it's just something to note that that was also used by fascist anti-imperialists and yes even though all the fascists had imperialist aims, they explicitly did. I mean, what do you think Germany was trying to do to to Central Europe, but but imperialize it and kill all the Slavs? And after they got rid of all the other undesirables that they were after, um, the it's also pretty clear that they also used anti-imperialist rhetoric. There, there's a meme that goes around. About you know, about the American imperialism is actually a uh, a Nordic Nazi poster that sometimes gets shared by people who don't realize what they're sharing, um, and you know it has. But is is it cool? It is cool. It has like a clan member with like uh with like Uncle Sam over here, and then some clearly miscegenated people, but also has an anti-slavery thing going on there. There there you know, but it was a it was actually fascist propaganda. So you, when you ask yourself, like, what are we, what kind of theories are we, are we dealing with with anti-imperialist stuff? A lot of people just throw out a whole bunch of garbage gook uh, that they've slammed together, like a, like, like misunderstanding Lenin's revolutionary defeatism argument, uh, and slamming that in with um, uh, third world, uh, the developing nations are what was then called third world patriotism argument, or the uh, then also tying that maybe into non the non aligned movement, and people move often in leftist circles because they're undereducated about their own history and don't really know that there are profound differences and debates around this post Lenin. Uh, that they're moving rapidly between these these different conceptions that are actually mutually exclusive a lot of the time. So we can talk about how um, when we talk about anti-imperialism, uh, you start asking people what they think that means, you'll get radically different answers, even from people who are nominally the same sect and ideology. Well, I'll be I, I very, very honest. Uh, one of the reasons I think that happens, particularly in the American left, is because everyone is sucking the tit of empire in America, and there's no skin in the game. You know that's why I, you know you know I, I watch a lot of foreign policy, and you know I speak about foreign policy in terms of one specific place generally, and that is Haiti. Why? Because I understand 
how imperialism has historically worked regarding that particular country for over a century. That doesn't mean I don't understand how imperialism works anywhere else. What it does mean is that I don't want to fall into the trap of making analyses based on political trends and ideology simply because I'm spouting rhetoric divorced from the actual material history in space in order to fit an ideological trend that's stuck in 1972 or because I, I got a hard-on reading Frantz Fanon. Yeah. Well, I, I think what if we ask ourselves like how imperialism works today versus the way that Lenin describes it in 1917, you have a very different image. Um, and I think Lenin was right about the world he described in 1917. But like that's not the way things operate today. Um, it may be returning back to that. Maybe that's a consequence of multipolarity, unquote. Um, if you're going to use British uh, 19th century and early 20th century British geopolitical thinking as uh, your grounds for understanding modern political economy, go ahead. Because that, by the way, is the origins of that phrase. It, it, it um, also very well just be the decay of the system. The Just as you see a decay in the physical infrastructure and uh, networks that maintain global capitalism. Um, the toxic cloud over East Palestine, Ohio is just the most current illustration. Uh, you also have the decay of the mechanisms and structures of um, American global power projection and influence. And that creates openings for other countries, potentially. Um, it may also just be a um, process of weakening any type of um, I mean and territorial governance. I mean that's the that's the thing you know the the advocates of something like multipolar uh, multipolarity it's like it's rolling the, it's basically rolling the dice. Their whole theory is that well, if you break down imperial power um, of the United States, that will create opportunities for the growth of socialism, which strikes me as not being, strikes me as being a very big leap of faith. But as Cooper says, as Cooper says, uh, you know, it, it, it would lead to, it, it could lead to just the general degeneration of any system of global governance. It could just lead to a new neo-realist world. Every country world. is Somalia. Yeah, or no, you just end up with a new set of uh, like countries with spheres of influence and a balanced power. Go ahead, Pascal. Sorry. Frankly, I think that we're all just taking too many deep scenarios. You know, it, at, at best, it might get you a better contract in terms of who's going to build the bridges in your third world backward right. country. Exactly. Pascal, I mean, like this is uh, and also like advocating something that seems to be happening organically is like advocating for rain. I mean, it's good, that, I guess, that you get rain, but it, your advocation of it is kind of fucking irrelevant, isn't it? Yeah, the clouds um, aren't going to rain no, harder. There, listen, <laughs> there is no ideological counter capitalist project on the world stage being projected with pending multipolarity. No, there isn't. All right? China is not going into Africa saying, my friend, have you read Das Kapital? 
which the Soviet well, Union actually did. And and yeah. even China well, did back Union, in the day. The Soviet Union, quite frankly, not only did that, but they provided guns and weapons mm-hmm. to fight the imperialists and the pre and the colonial and the colonial empires. Those days are gone, man. Yeah, they are. Those, those days are gone. The best you're gonna get is you're gonna get some countries in the global south and the African continent who might be able to get a better you know development deal mm-hmm. from the Chinese. A better weapons deal from the Russians to fight, uh, you know, the Africom forces that the U.S. is tra- is sending over, and it's going to go from there. Where I, where I have the problem is is that once, particularly the Russians and the Chinese, are going to try to expand in the African continent because it's so resource rich under the guise of development deals and more weapons, the United States is going to double down in terms of its AFRICOM expansion agenda and the new developing terrain for this military conflagration is not going to be Ukraine. It's going to end up being, you know, Congo, Nigeria, you you name it, wherever else. Not that it's bad. It's not bad that it's Ukraine. Now it might be Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, we still haven't settled the war in Ethiopia fully. Uh, There's plenty of, conflicts um, available to metastasize into those great power um, proxy fights. And there's plenty to, to fight over. One interesting test of the Ukraine war will be to see if this model of kind of franchise warfare, where um, one state, uh, the local state does um, all of the dying, but the superpower block does all of the funding and supplying, uh, whether that's a workable model. Um, if so, then we're off to the races. It's just a matter of uh, who uh, NATO might be able to find to fight its particular baddie of the month. We have a super chat here from JB. Thank you, JB, very much. Uh, China sending Huawei into nations to build cyber infrastructure, and the cost is do business with China. Is it is it as simple as that? Well, I don't know if that's a cost because either do business with China or do business with the IMF. Which shark do you want to bite you? Yeah, I think I think the perception is that China China is not the shark. Would you guys agree? In, a, in China many does not China does not do. Um, explicitly and actually under anti-imperialist logic, I know this is going to sound strange, but explicitly and under anti-imperialist logic, China does not do freebies. It will, but it it has been generous in in renegotiating debt. Um, uh, the, the statements of debt traps have been greatly exaggerated by the liberal media. You're not getting you're not getting me to take a particular anti-Chinese position, but it is not the same. As what the Soviets did at all? No, uh, it's what it's it's what's it's it's business because if you're like a new, it's like it's ba- it's simply business because if you're in uh you're trying to get into a new market, you go in and you try and offer a better deal than the existing uh, uh, people who are dominating that market, which is the United States and France, and so also, the Chinese mostly France really in the Africa, but yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll, Huawei 
has a superior 5G product, period. Right? Yeah, it does. If we're accepting any notion of um, consumer choice or market competition, Huawei is cheaper and better. Why is anybody anywhere using anything else for their 5G networks? And the reason is that um, it comes embedded with um, the opportunity for you know, surveillance, espionage, etc. The Americans are already doing that on every other platform and system. Good luck having a secure conversation on an iPhone. Would you but, call Huawei a co-op cooler? Like, I'm not going to look into the internal governance of Huawei to make like a technical decision on that. All I know is that the leader is still a billionaire. This, I mean, the, my, my position is, um, my position is that from the perspective of global South countries, the option of dealing with the Chinese does provide luxuries that did not exist before when your Absolutely. only option was dealing with your 100%. former colonial power or the IMF or the World Bank. And the and the, chi the Chinese, like honestly in Africa, their biggest enemy is themselves in that they keep their deal secrets. Yep. Uh, like a lot of the deals that they have, the, the terms are not made public. The terms are usually pretty good. They're a lot better. Now, China, when operating in an international market, they they play by international rules anyway. So there are limitations on the kinds of deals that they can engage in. But A, the Chinese are out there making money. And B, unlike the West, when the you know our industrial capacity became inconvenient for the ruling class, they wound it down. The Chinese, after a massive phase of construction, they're now exporting their uh, capacity, uh, the the uh, the construction capacity, their technological know-how. So at the same time as doing this developmental aid, they're also paying their own people to 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 maintain the skills, and uh, you know the, you know maintain their like uh, construction and technology center, which seems like a like a smarter thing to do to be but honest. i think that we all i think we all agree that at this particular state of perceived economic precarity in the united states where the traditional notion is that america wants to be the zero-sum game victor in global capitalism the notion that the chinese become the global international trader of record that it's moving to eclipse the United States is going to be unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, well, we have another it, super chat here that uh, it looks like it's an angry one. And uh, you can send angry super chats if you really want to. Um, if you really want to. If you really China want China. to, I'm all for it because I think it's kind of funny. But if you want to do that, I mean, go for it. No one China charges 2%. On loans without modification. Stop obfuscating. The devil is in the modifications, even if the IMF loan is 1%. Nothing in that statement contradicts a goddamn thing I said. No, it reinforces everything we just said. Yeah. yeah. The, the Chinese none are, of us, good none of us are particularly anti-Chinese. Um, the... Cuba, Cuba better not be anti-Chinese. <laughs> no, in fact, in everything I've studied on the deals with, with China, the, the deals are tend to be very good they tend to be fair um like they're just secret and they're secret 
probably for international competition reasons because they don't but, want the IMF. Under Derek, this is this is what I was trying to get at with this whole show in general. There is a good guy, bad guy perception with the world. That, well, I mean, um, if that's what gets people up at night, if they want to throw money on a super chat so they can mock people because they have that kind of money to waste. Good on them. No, I don't just, know what they think they're doing. But do you understand but, what I'm saying? Like, do you guys agree that there's a good guy, bad guy perception of the world? Yo, there's no, listen, there's no, it's about business, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people like to, people like to uh, transform all political narratives into a Marvel movie or the mm. latest storyline in the WWE, where you can concretely find. Uh, a good guy and a bad guy. Some sometimes there's no good guy and bad guy, and you don't need to fall for the double blackmail, right? You can, don't. Can, need... can we actually like for a second though? I I do get a little bit annoyed with these facile psychologicalizations of of people because you know, in some ways we have no idea. I don't know anyone's heart and mind. I'm not going to pretend to. I do get kind of offended when people like pretend I'm a fucking fed and I have shot. But excuse me, I have. Uh, reacted strongly to people for less but um um there is there is something that that i that that really that really misses the point here like i could make a revolutionary defenses defense of the of of china and um and yet also admit that this is nothing like what the Soviet Union did in the 1950s and 60s in regards to to the developing world. I'm not even sure that what the Soviet Union did ended up paying off that much for the Soviet Union, frankly. Um, some of the countries. Are the countries in which, yeah, and the countries in which it armed and led revolutionary movements because of what happened later. Like, I'm just stating that if you're making comparisons, they need to be deeper than than like fair business practices of course the west isn't giving anyone like fuck the west isn't even giving europe any more fair business practices like well, the the west western governments won't even bribe their own population with like yeah it's like they won't even bribe you with social democracy yeah. it's like come on man you think that offering the goodies to everybody else around the world no they're terrible but um yeah, I, I mean, mean, but but there but, is a sense in which you like if you want to compare what China did with the Belt and Road Initiative, it is a way in, that resembles what the U.S. tried to do specifically with the Europeans and building up a, a global capital infrastructure out of what was left of the of the English imperial, uh, you know, control over the over the over the oceans, and. And, you know, I, I actually think if they had gotten more of it off the ground before all these crises hit with COVID, it, the world would be a better place. You're not getting any argument from me about that. But that's actually that's not particularly relevant to imperialism or anti-imperialism. And if we are honest, like if you read like if you're basing your definition of imperialism off of what Lenin said, for example, it is not clear that any of these powers aren't doing what Lenin said they would do. All right. And that would imply then if we operate off of, off of this notion that Lenin is our standing grounds for this. And, and I'm not saying we should or shouldn't because we're in a completely different context. I'm just saying, if we're being consistent here, like then 
some of this looks like inner imperial squabbling, frankly, and that's exactly what what imperialism, the highest state of capitalism, would have predicted. Now, I would argue that we live in a different world, and that some of those things that were very true in a revolutionary situation and a world crisis in nineteen from nineteen fourteen to nineteen say forty five uh, may not be true anymore. And we have to come up with our own analysis of it. But if you're going to invoke that analysis, you better goddamn be consistent about it. Well, the point about the 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 point about the good guy now a bad guy narrative, I, I wouldn't say it's a psychological argument per se, but I think people uh, ha- at least have you know popular culture, the way people view society, the 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 thing like look, NATO was literally on the official NATO Twitter. They were making references to Thanos and uh, the Harkonnens and all these, you know, like all these popular countries. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a snob about it and say like I don't like like the first Iron Man movie. I thought it was quite good. I enjoyed the Dune movie, no problem. But I do think people, uh, I do think a lot of anti-imperialism in, in the West ends up just being a simple inversion of like the american inceptionist argument like instead of america being uniquely innocent and always having in its heart the right thing to do uh america is uniquely evil which misses the point that states are amoral like you know it's not like like you could make the argument that like yeah barack obama or like the united states is responsible for ISIS in a broad sense by creating certain conditions which led to the rise or accelerating certain conditions. But if you freaking think Barack Obama was sitting there like freaking planning to, you know, establish a caliphate in Mosul so that they could do some 10 dimensional chess that would end up with the Iranians becoming the preeminent power in Iraq, uh, then you've been hitting the crack pipe too much. And you basically have just bought into a secularized version of the elder, pro, you know, the protocols of Zion, right? Like just as, you know, the Protestant ethic gets shorn of its Protestant part, you end up with like anti-Semitic conspiracy type thinking just in a secularized version rather and, than thinking and, about what, yeah. Are we, are and you we, can we, imagine the two by two matrix of um, like the inversion of American exceptionalism domestically and politically. And the domestic variant is woke culture, anti-racism, etc. Um, it's and it, you can be a good liberal as long as you've got one, at least one, box ticked. So anti-imperialism can be your virtue, which then lets you continue to believe in American democracy, or um, you can be um, hyper woke internally uh, to the United States, and you can um, back up NATO expansion and uh, mission civilisatrice. That's so true. Pascal, do you want to add something here? Yeah, I mean, my position is that you know, for people who are like America is uniquely bad, how would you feel if you lived in Great Britain? I mean, my my, my position is that like you know, America is bad, Great Britain is bad. French, for me, is going to be worse than all of them for various historical reasons. But, yeah, America has, you know, what, 800, 900 military bases. 
Yeah, at scale, America has the capacity for destruction. But all these bastards are bad. Yeah, I, I think I, there's a couple of points that I want to come back to about whether or not this is like some psychological projection. Uh, and, and you know, there's some inverted American exceptionalism are that people think they know a lot more than they can fucking possibly know because they got it off of a stream from someone downstream of, I don't know, someone who went to a Croton Brisk or something. Um, the the reality of the situation is most of the people talking um, have at best quadruciarily away information. And most of us only have secondary or tertiary information, but I have lived in a lot of the places that people talk about so much and they seem to care about so much, even though they don't seem to know much about its actual real lived um, uh, uh, situation. One of the things I, I think people need to get over, and this is this is uh, when I talk about analysis, it's a different thing than when I'm talking about who you should accept as allies. Like if you have to deal with an anti-war coalition and you think they're all going to be good leftists, I hate to tell you you're a fucking moron. And if that's your demand, that is a that is actually kind of a, a moronic demand. Um, the idea that any political program could be hatched perfectly cleanly and purely before people got involved with it and everybody would be on board is a facile notion of how politics works. Um, and I think with that, we have to realize that sometimes there's going to be people on our side that have bad motives, right? Like, um, just like we can completely see uh, plenty of people whose internalization of whatever norms, um, uh, because of the way things have ro rolled out in, in Ukraine, think that they can also like take neoconservative talking points about Ukraine and be and it still somehow be OK because Putin is, you know, responsible for Russia gate and leading a right-wing conspiracy around the world. F furthermore, the idea of projecting like leftism onto Putin's government seems to be fundamentally unserious too. Um, we can, t we can seriously talk about it in terms of China, but I do not think you can seriously talk about it in terms of Russia, but supporting our, our supporting either side of this um, uh, situation based off purely uh Yeah, yeah, people have been saying that for 20 fucking years. Um, uh, I'm responding to the U.S. loses status as the world's dominant reserve currency. The, the quickest currency being replaced by the by the yuan right now is the euro. And look, it would be great if, well, actually it wouldn't be great. I, it, but the, uh, the people who listen to heterodox economists who have told them a lot of things that they want to hear um, uh, and... Uh, haven't looked at the actual flows of of currency and money and the dollar um we have a super chat uh chris morlock says the war of imperialisms is an esc button what from from living <laughs> <laughs> you know you, this is this is how you know this is a show 
because if we were an actual political movement, we'd have to 1936 some people because they're a distraction. Don't 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 make Sarah come in with the snip snaps. Pascal go away. Pascal uh, disappeared. Where did he go? I think his Wi-Fi went out. It was. A, I think. A, I think he heard Varn starting to um, 1936, and he had to be like. Wait, where's my dossier today? <laughs> you know, what when did the black comes... commissar say about me last time? It's when white it... guy. It's white guy Thursday. The white purge wins. <laughs> um, when when people talk about the decline of dollar hegemony, that's inevitable too. There's going to be no world currency that's that stable for that long. Um, but the way that it's been predicted to happen. So far, everybody I've seen that's predicted something, such as BRICS taking over magically because somehow India and China are going to be on the same team all of a sudden because reasons um, that have to that technically involve their their mutual support for Russia, but ignores their own internal uh, divisions within themselves and the fact that U.S. business has been living leading heavily on moving a lot of its production from. Uh, from China into India and a lot of a lot of developing market investment has been going that way as well. Thus splitting up any BRICS coalition. Uh, that that is stuff you guys need to be much more realistic about when you talk about this. Um and and not just project. Yes, the US dollar is going to first get stronger and probably get weaker. All right. If but that, you know, again, that's like talking about um uh, rain again those those patterns are patterns of capital and if if you think that that uh the world reserve market's going to be super open to a fucking socialist country that uh, currency uh just so it could continue capitalist trade i you, you really need to think some things through um there's a lot of this that frustrates me because it it pretends knowledge that people just do not seem to be willing to invest in having. And this is knowledge that you can't just get from a stream. Like when we talk about the nature of say, uh, someone asked him about the nature of whether or not such and such business is a co-op. There's about 80 different forms of, of state run organizations in China that have different internal organizations. Some of which I can't even find out about in the West. And I, you know, I'm not assuming anything nefarious about that. It's just not been anything that anyone's covered in English. And I guess I could go really dig into China's own public stats and try to figure that out if it's public information, which it may not be. So when we, when you, when you pretend to know these things, um, when you don't, it's it's a major credibility problem. Um, when we talk about what's going on in the, in the developing world, I can tell you from living in North Africa, attitudes around China uh, were that China was the future, but that maybe people shouldn't trust it. All right. No one trusted the Americans when I was in North Africa because, they're, you know, like actually weirdly, um, I've talked about this in the past. People just thought that uh, Obama betrayed any potential mission that they saw in him themselves that they were even kind of the average uh egyptian was actually kind of pro-trump 
because they thought that they could at least Trump trust Trump's position. Um, but there you go. Um, so there's, there's a whole lot that we could talk about here, but when it comes to like the anti-war movement, there's a very serious sense in which like one, we have to be realistic about how the changes in the structure of the military has limited public's opinion to do anything about, about it. And two, in so much that we do think public opinion can do something about it, uh, expecting it to be purely, even purely anti-imperialist or definitely purely leftist or even, you know, aligned with any, with any singular goal is, it's just an immature thought and people who, and people will use that to their advantage. And by people, I mean, you know, people who support NATO, um, it, it is important to understand the institutional history of the anti-war movement is, is not consistently on either side of the political ledger. Um, but yeah, that's my, I mean, I think, I think that's an important thing to say, you know, there's always the question of like, who's using who. So, you know, if people are going to be anti-war and that aligns with your interests, that's cool, but just make sure they're not the ones calling the shot and then, you know, liquidating you in to their political movement. You want to be doing the other way around. Well, something can be able to asking yeah, like, people in America to stay independent from, from dominant political movements seems to be like seems to be something pissing that, in, pissing in, in the, the wind. Yeah, it just seems to be something that no one will even consider. Because well, as soon as they realize that you're tailing the Democrats, the response is let's go tail the Republicans. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Cuba. Sorry. No, um, the oh, plenty of Americans stay completely independent of any kind of political engagement. Dropping out is the ultimate um, disaffiliation. Yeah, a lot of people, I wouldn't say wrong either. <laughs> There's a lot of Americans who don't like politics, and a lot of um, a hell of a lot of Americans who can't stand foreign policy or don't understand it or don't don't care enough to watch it. No, I, I mean, I don't blame people. You know, we, we, you know, after this, um, after this moment, uh, the failure of the DSA, Jacobin, Sanders strategy to get some childcare and some help after that failure. Can't the imperialists people, bribe us? Like I always, that Maoists used to tell me they did that. I would love that bribe. Oh yeah, bribe me. I would, bribe me now uh but like the after that's failed i think we're going to see the rise of like a lot more sectarian groups but i think the main thing is people are just going to check out of politics because they ain't got time for it anymore because they're just going to be like it doesn't work why do i even bother well it's just like the news right um people haven't really checked out of the news because now there's a new angle to these the way we look at politics which makes it uh, an enjoyable back and forth, uh, drama filled fight. So that's true. I mean, that, and, like that's, and that's what this all is for a lot of people is a, is a drama filled fight. Always got to be a twist for the coming season. Yeah. Like, yeah, like there's going to be a huge reveal. X turns out to be a fascist. Woo. No, George W's coming back as a white hat. Yeah. yeah white, <laughs> white hat. <laughs> No, it's going to be Biden Bush, twenty twenty four. Oh, that would be wow! That would be, that would be the best. Oh, 
Only in a only in a movie. Only we, in a movie. We should make that movie. We and they're going to end up personally negotiating um, peace with Putin. <laughs> well, Vladimir, <laughs> I, I looked at your eyes. Marvel I know there's a good man still in there. <laughs> Giga Chad uh, Bush. Yeah, let's bring back Bush. What about Bush Clinton 2024? Uh, Pascal, Clinton, Pascal. And they get married at the uh, DNC. Ch- Chelsea Clinton, and they enter in a polygamous um, Mormon marriage. How about that? Can, can we oh, talk no, about the reality no. of the of the deep state for a second? Instead, like. I mean, in a real, in a real sense, because one of the things that I think was missed during the, the this whole re- recapitulation about Trump was that there was a, there was a kind of paleo conservative realist faction in in the Trump administration that was all purged by tw- by uh, by 2018, almost to a man, <laughs> um, and and replaced didn't make it. Yeah, or our uh, what's his face? Um, Bolton, not Bolton, but I was about to say, uh, the the person that Bolton replaced, um, who was like a an old business conservative who was very openly oh, war skeptic. Yeah. I can't Rex remember. Tillerson. Yeah, yeah, Rex, Rex Tillerson. Tillerson. Yeah, I mean, like those people were all were all purged, and then we saw neocon faces. We see the little Bolton stash come back, and. And even in the attempts to realign and take a more anti-war position within the within the general chiefs of staff, which Trump tried to do in the best of his ability, uh, they were still largely in support of uh, consensus um, security, you know, positions. I mean, and that's even from people like quote Mad Dog Mateus, who apparently hated Trump's guts, but Mateus was known for being less hawkish in the Amer- in the military industrial regime uh before he was before he took the position but notice i said less he still thought it we needed to like pivot and have a strong response to iran he was still part of the long going pivot to asia by the way the pivot to asia goes all the way back to samuel fucking huntington if you go back and read the class of civilizations like he wasn't the the rebranding of that book as about like Islamic terrorists is is actually a retrojection onto the book. Like most of that book is about them being afraid of like the Asian cultures and and actually think even mostly Japan weirdly. But like um, the, the the that whole like oh we need to stop worrying about uh, the Middle East. Uh, because eventually we'll get this whole energy crisis thing fixed and start pivoting to Asia for geopolitical reasons. That's like a long durée project. That's part that plenty of people in the new American century have believed in. Right. I mean, like that's not, that definitely goes back to Obama, but there's a faction. Liz Cheney. Goes, Liz Cheney yeah. has been called, has been on that beat since she's like, no, why are we doing the war? on the war on terror was like a total destruction. A total debacle, and there were a lot of people just like, "Why are we? Why are we doing this? Why? Why are we? This is not. We need to be, you know, preparing to fight the Chinese, not running around in the sand doing nation building uh, for people's kind of 
largely delusional projects of how they could project American power through shaping reality. A rea because imperialism, you know, the problem with a lot of the conspiratorial views of uh, imperialism, it like attributes way too much competence to the instruments of American political power. Don't get me wrong. You know, you've got people who were capable intelligence operatives who were capable of doing things, but like the, the vast manipulation of global affairs by the United States, it's less a manipulation. It's more of like surfing the wave or, you know, like managing the crisis or, or like, you know, trying to push things into your direction while your colleague is unknowing to you pushing things in another direction uh, because he also wants the promotion because this whole conspiratorial view of American hegemony around the world is like, you know, uh, like it seems like so, like everybody th seems to think the CIA is like run by giga chats and it's like, my bros, it's run by Mormons. No, it's just Giga Sats. <laughs> giga Sats. <laughs> Actually, there is there is kind of a State Department preference, uh, particularly in Middle Eastern part policy for people around the LDS Church. Um, when I, some of my uh, some of my former right wing colleagues uh, used to call it the MQ, um, the Mormon question. Uh, what was the Mormon question? I want to know about the Mormon question. Well, the they, answer they basically, was no caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Mormon question was what? What are they, What are what are we good Catholics and Protestants going to do about the Mormon infiltration of the of the well, of the State Department? The like CIA the, is, the CIA is Mickey Mouse in terms of foreign intelligence. Now, now it's the Department of Defense, NSA. Those are the big boys, and nobody takes the CIA seriously when it comes to espionage. Now, I mean, they're. They're well, they, they they're all not, they're all you know like I totally I just I just want to, I want someone to make that cartoon like a, a skit where that that woman who was like I have like anxiety disorder Latina agent <laughs> like and Jack Ryan's like I need an effing extraction right now and she's like you're really stressing me out with your tone I'm you, having you trigger a, your tone you is causing me well Cuba she, Cuba Cuba has to leave now uh, Cuba thank you for hanging out with us and uh, I got your mom's here. Power. Was supposed yeah. to pick him up has got some kind of panic attack because um he saw something mean on a podcast. So I have to go. Jack Bauer is code for your mom. Your mom's here. Thank you very much for hanging out with us. Have a good night. Thank uh, you, Cuba. Mrs. We said hello. Uh, I can turn my camera back on now. Bam! Ah, he exists. I do. I do exist. I've just been uh, responding back to people extremely hilariously in the chat. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Was that no, the one I, time not, you wanted to time me out? Um, not the one time, <laughs> but the most recent time. <laughs> For sure, the most recent. I wanted to say something more again about the capacity of American intelligence. I think in turn, I think it's a, a project of diminishing return. In that, when there were, when America was kind of the fulcrum of hegemonic power, particularly after World War II, and you know the, the days of the Dulles Brothers, you know when we could you know take out Mossadegh, you know whack Patrice Lumumba, you know, you know things of that nature. The glory days, 
when you were dealing with, you know, counter hegemons like the Chinese coming around when the Soviets were predictable because, you know, they were working on a certain exodus of, okay, we're trying to expand, you know, the influence of communism and the expectations were kind of easily maintained. I think it was a much more facile way of pushing buttons internationally. I think what happens in the period of the post fall of the Soviet Union, particularly in the period of neoliberalization with the rise of Nixon going into Carter, and once they start to get into places where the ability to maintain control, particularly in the Middle East, become hard to manage, and they don't have actors they can easily categorize, then the good old days of the kind of like WASC Anglo-Saxon management of American intelligence really start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. You know, because the people who are actually managing the donut shop are not the same people anymore. I remember yeah. there was one time when we, we had a conversation, and I remember when, when uh, Vaughn was here, we were talking about it, is that there are things in terms of international foreign policy in business that a Bush or a Dulles would never do, that you can see a Clinton doing at the drop of a dime. Mm. Because the investment in the history of American empire for a wasp who can say my ancestors populated New England and someone who, but for the grace of like, you know, the New Deal is even in American politics, they have a different view of the nation state in the American project. Okay, sure. Uh, I think what maybe maybe something to think about here is uh, the nature of hegemony, and I'm using hegemony here not just in not just capitalism because hegemony is something that predates capitalism probably, unless we're unless we're in a truly post-national situation, post-capital as well. Um, is that hegemony makes you fucking lazy. Um, like, and you let your own institutions atrophy. You often have to start, your elite becomes so removed from, uh, from its general society that you have to find new strivers from, from, from newly incorporated peoples. Uh, and, and, you know, I say that because this is something we see in Rome. This is something you see in um, the pre um, the pre communist Chinese states. This is something you see in Britain. Obviously, um, by the time you get to imperial decadence and Disraeli and all that, you start seeing them pulling outside from from you know outside incorporated peoples. Um, and I think a lot of the uh, I think a lot of um, uh, what we're about to see that's about to get ugly and kind of unpredictable is uh, I, I don't think the U.S. is all that invested in Europe anymore. Uh, for example, I think we're about to let uh, the U.K. become a um, a, a, a minor uh, business player in the world, so much so that this, you know, that it's it's uh, economic prospects are like um to decline rapidly to say what we call middle income uh, standards on the world scale. Um, and, and it's, I think the U S is just going to let it happen. Um, and, and why, I mean, 
uh, in some ways you can blame post-imperial UK decadence. I mean, in its own farming out of everything to everywhere else. So these are patterns. You know, I, I love to be specific to capital. We talk about capital. I think there's capitalist decadence patterns, too, that you can add to this. But hegemony in general uh, breeds a fatuous ruling class, elites that serve them that may be super specialized but don't actually understand anything beyond their own technical specializations, if that, and um, an, an increasing dependence on usually the military in these scenarios to hold everything together. So I think we're seeing that, but you know, is that anti-imperialism that that's happening or is that just the natural state of like hegemonic empires? I have like, I would probably say the latter, but that's just me. Tucson. Can we address that super chat that was just on the screen? Sure. Thank you. This is from JV American intelligence blowback goes back to the beginning. There was no golden age. U.S. foreign policy manages these crises via whack-a-mole. Yeah, it always so what, has. What, 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 one thing, yeah, certainly I think it's it's possible to look at the successes of the U.S. intelligence services, and they did have successes, and then ignore the many, many other intelligence, you know, for every... For every Allende, there's a Bay of Pigs, right? right. So there's there's that issue. Going uh, the other sea of ashes, it's like the CAA was not even that competent when it was the OSS. So yeah. And the the other the other the other issue is is I mean, of course, they there are more competent and less competent officials. The question is like a unity uh, of purpose within those organizations. They are like any other bureaucratic structure, subject to the same rules that govern bureaucratic structures, which is people are trying to advance their interests, uh, are often doing things for 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 personal advancement and mot motivating. Like the military industrial complex is not like some machine in which there are people plotting American superiority over the world. It's more like a giant box of people all like grifting to get as many, many new contracts as they can and mm -hmm. advance the political agendas which benefit their uh, benefit their country so you say this and this was printed in the uh afghanistan papers and we've mentioned this for since those papers came out we've been talking about this on this show and it seems like those papers still go unread by many people that uh are privy to these shows maybe because those papers don't get talked about often on these shows i don't know what do you think it is pascal i mean i don't think it was something that re it rose to people's uh imagination it wasn't really discussed a lot you know, well, can i ask is it because someone like microvell didn't read it into the record <laughs> hey, i think it has does... nothing to do with gravel reading anything into the record uh, as he did okay. with the uh i heard i heard it made a difference i think no one can the... yeah i mean People that is a di i think there's a certain level of cynicism that most people have in terms of beyond being being between just trying to pay their bills cynic in school you know, you know, have a nice night with their wife if they have one. Uh, you know, and so you know, 
life is not easy in the West, particularly in the U.S. It's stressful. It's, it's you know, it's it's difficult. People are paranoid about everything, about their kids, particularly if you have kids. So yeah, you know, totally. it takes a certain kind of luxury to be able to indulge in really analyzing these kinds. Not a luxury. That's that's too too much. But most people just don't do it. And I'm not talking about people who are, you know, unintelligent. Most intelligent people, they're not reading the deeper, deep dive nuances of foreign policy, world affairs. I mean, yeah, someone just said, rest in peace, Comrade Gravel. Yeah, but I think we have to deal with like a real, like, that when Gravel did that in the 70s and with the Pentagon Papers, you have everybody's life was tied up in Vietnam in a way and to a lesser degree, Korea in a way that was absolutely not the case for the 40 years of war we've had since, since, you know, the seventies. Um, there also is a real sense in which the, the economic world, the whole system in which, uh, uh, there was a social compact and workers were weak, but they were at least at the table and, you know, and they were at the table without even government structures. Like, you know, the, there's a story to be told about how Fordism actually creates the public partnerships that allow for neoliberalism. But there's also a reason where you have to look at the way that the changes in the economy and these wars actually tend to align in a way where you would have thought American life was fundamentally changing when Gravel is reading the Pentagon Papers and why people were scandalized by shit like Watergate, which but which even by 1990 standards, when you try to explain to people what that was actually about, they're like, what? Who cares? Everybody does that. Like, like, but by the time you get to like, you know, the dirty shenanigans of like Gary Hart or whatever, this stuff has become standard. Yeah, it's standard, but it's still news and it's still tanks campaigns. It it did back then, mm -hmm. but I, I think now in the post-Trump reality television world of politics, what will scandalize um uh sorry, I can't Gene just threw me off. Uh what will scandalize someone now? I have I have no idea. All I can tell you is like we are we've been seeing since the 2007 crisis that the ascendancy of neoliberalism as it existed from like 1976 to about I don't know 2001. I don't know what happened around 2001. Maybe a thing happened that year. Um, uh, Small bit. that that uh, that that economic world and that geopolitical world is over. And we are still dealing with like the neoliberal habits are still all around us. It's like Biden isn't creating some new Fordism. I'm not I'm not proposing that that neoliberalism is over, but we're in a completely different period of it. And it breeds general cynicism. It breeds um, disengagement. Um, and even people who are highly engaged in politics. As you've said yourself, Jason, and we actually sort of benefit from, like, fuck, it's part of our business model, if we're honest, um, uh, is a lifestyle brand. And that's because the effect it has on the actual world 
whether or not you have 500 people watching your stream or 200 people watching your stream in a country of 320 million. The, the environment is so totally fractured mm-hmm. that it, it's, it, it kind of doesn't matter anymore. There is no like coherent common culture and, and you don't want to speak to coherent common culture. That's the quickest way not to have an audience. Ask NPR. Like, <laughs> well, like, let, well, Gene Bajlan, before you finish, Gene Bajlan has to go. Um, and, and Tucson has to go. So Gene, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Bye Gene. Clap, 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 <laughs> Eric Barnes just sent the funniest message. And Pascal's That wasn't Tucson. That was an uh, imposter. Th- that, uh, so you know. <laughs> Should we wrap up now? We've gone for two hours, and this is a two yes, hour session. Yes, we should wrap up. Let's be done. We, sh- we should wrap up. Look. Are you sure, Varn? Varn got two more hours left in him. Varn can talk. Varn can. Varn can go for hours and hours and hours Look, and hours. Why don't we do this? Don't why me. don't we do this, Derek Varn? Why don't we not stream and we can call each other on our TIR group call since uh, <laughs> and talk a lot of shit one, on the black one now since Gene and Cuba have segregated the group calls. <laughs> Yes, black excellence is back in the house where he belongs. We'll have a black group call, and uh, and we can have a friendly black group call, and uh, we'll just in words everywhere, just falling all over. Oh, dropped an in word. Not for me. I do not. That does not fall from my mouth. So this was this was the most fun I've had in a long time. So I want to thank everybody for watching. <laughs> Um, if you have anything you disagree with, if you have anything you want to say negatively about anyone on the screen, past or present, please leave a comment. Tucson mm-hmm. loves reading them. I and, do. Uh, the real Tucson. The... <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, the, okay. Last super chat of the day. Last super chat of the day. Um, can you see it on the screen, Tucson? My computer's moving slow. Is it yes. on the screen? It was on the screen. Now it's kind of now. It's, oh, Tucson! There. Here is more Prairie of my Fire. reparations news. Thank you very much, Prairie Fire. Thank you, Kowalski. That's pretty fun. Our other favorite Polish dude. Uh, uh, someone says the pew pew episode. I guess pew pew means people were shooting. There was there was some shots fired all over the place, particularly in the chat. Tucson, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't know if Varner Pascal got to read any of my comments, but uh oh my god. I was uh, deliberately didn't read that much of the chat because I knew I would like challenge everyone to a duel. No yeah, duel. We were getting close to that. No <laughs> duel challenge. <laughs> No dual yeah. challenging. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be doing another episode to piss you guys off tomorrow. Uh, we're going to air it Saturday. We're going to talk about why Jay-Z and Kanye West are the greatest rappers of all time. Oh, my God. Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback. Slavery <laughs> <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> what else are we going to say? We're going to talk She's about right. Rihanna's kids. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about why Rihanna ruined the Super Bowl. 
what else are we gonna say? What else? We're not talking about Ronald him. Reagan, maybe the greatest president of all time. Oh my god. Free young thug. I can't Free even say that thug. as a joke. <laughs> what Haiti got wrong about the revolution? <laughs> oh. What else? What else are we gonna talk about on the Saturday the Saturday show? We have a young thug. Hashtag for young thug. about hip hop is good, which is none from this decade. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna talk about why mumble rap is the forgotten genre of greatness. Hey man, little baby mumbles when he speaks. It's kind of not his fault. Uh, and also, we're going to throw in at least you're twenty just gonna minutes. Say, like blue-eyed soul is the best form of soul. I mean, what are we doing here? Like, how look, many look, we're going to have a whole section on why J.K. Rowling is misunderstood. Oh, fuck! <laughs> There's a whole podcast about that now. Let's just uh, not touch yeah. that. Are we looking for demonetization, canceling, all the above? Like, oh, just, oh, we'll get monetized like crazy on that. Uh, but we, well, you won't we, be uh, monetized by YouTube. You'll just start getting, you'll get certain <laughs> other kinds of money going your way, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Mumble rap is black excellence. Somebody said. <laughs> Mumble rap is black excellence. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, what, what austerity gets right? <laughs> Ronald Reagan, great president or the greatest. You're just gonna Thank like a defense of colonialism. Like, oh, what better, else you, you know, like? better than that, better than that, better than that. The 94 crime bill, yes, <laughs> <laughs> greatest thing to ever happen. Yeah. <laughs> why, why we need more prisons for more Negroes? Why Joe Biden is the goat? Why Joe Biden is the goat. <laughs> That is what we'll be talking about. Oh, and we're definitely um, making a new shirt that says Pro NATO on it. Pro NATO. Pro NATO. And Pro NATO. Pro <laughs> Have some more kids, everybody. There you go. That is yep. uh, that is what we're to be. No, we're actually going to be doing a show about uh, De La Soul, actually. So I'm really excited about this show. We'll be doing it with Daniel Monte. I hit up yep. Daniel and we took us a while to get a date we tried to do it closer to uh when true goy passed away but uh, we'll be doing a whole retrospective on the native tongues 90s hip-hop i'm being serious about this we're actually no yeah no i'm actually like i'm like how how is de la soul gonna piss anybody off that's <laughs> no no like, it'd be show, really surprised no a bunch of there. like de la soul haters out there <laughs> <laughs> But if we made those the, guys have the, if we made the mm. thumbnail De La Soul, but it was just mumble rappers. Oh, ooh. Oh. Pascal the, likes them. De La Soul, the SoundCloud rapper of the past. Is that how you're going to start that? Well, <laughs> De La Soul was De La Soul the first ever SoundCloud rapper. <laughs> Pascal, you're old enough to remember this. Remember when people dissed De La Soul? Old hip hop heads were like, "This is trash." Absolutely. Just young this people, hip hop shit is stupid. Remember when Robert Townsend was dissed? They was soft. They called him soft. Yeah. Because they had daisies. Uh, Barney and Jason also paid Nafo trolls. 
I think NAFO is Black NATO. Oh. Or it could be a relative of mine. Oh boy. There's some in jokes that your chat has that I don't get. Like I'm just just want to say we don't this get is why I'm either. This is why I'm the sometimes why of this situation because clearly like I, I I'm like I don't get like three fourths of the in jokes, but it may just be because I don't actually have a sense of humor. Like you are three fourths of the in jokes, <laughs> man. Black excellent. Black History Month. We oh. got. It. Wait, is this the last Black History Month day? No, no it's the twenty eighth, man. Wait, what day is it? It's only the 23rd. Oh. The 23rd, man. You're trying to make How five days today. Shows is, do? Today is WD Du Bois's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> PMC said TIR NAFO shirt is a bridge too <laughs> Who is NAFO, you play cousin? NAFO. Pascal, what does NAFO stand for? Niggas ain't fucking around? I don't know. <laughs> Wait, what the <laughs> OD? Oh, round. Niggas ain't fucking around. Niggas ain't fucking Oscar. How about that? You know? uh, Niggas ain't fucking. It's a Twitter thing. It's a Twitter. Is it? Are you making that up? Somebody said that in the chat. NAFO is a Twitter thing. What, like, what is does it stand for? <laughs> I like O round. I think Pascal is right. <laughs> <laughs> the North Atlantic Fellows Organization. The North Atlantic Fellows? Fellows? Or Fellows? Oh, oh, oh. So the oh. North Atlantic Fellows Organization? Oh, it's man. Is that, is that a, a new word for Negroes? Apparently a counter. No, no, no. It's a counter-Russian propaganda and disinformation campaign uh, that uh, NAFO OFAN uh, I like Pascal's definition better. Yeah, this is gross, man. <laughs> Verify how child labor can solve childhood obese. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't laugh because I think that's coming. Virtuoso, thank you for the super chat. Drill rap is the new punk rock. Discuss. Pascal will be heading up that episode. That's all Pascal. Pascal likes drill rap. Um, so from now on, NAFO stands for niggas ain't fucking around. That's what around. Oh yeah. Like hey, NAFO. Like once you say yeah. that, like, oh, it's getting serious in here. He just nafoed the whole room. <laughs> Every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. Oh, well, that man. makes it sound like there's a black contingency of the Azov Battalion. So on that note, we should probably end. <laughs> black Azov. Black Azov. <laughs> Fucking his black Azov. <laughs> Ukraine clan ain't nothing. To <laughs> I feel like you know there's a Mr. Show sketch about this for those of us who are fucking Gen Xers or something. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
there's someone that should have never gave you people a channel. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw someone say Ados Azoff, and I'm like, I'm stepping out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Pascal has to wait on the Meg versus Ice Spice debate. Ooh. Anyway, on that note, <laughs> yeah, let's end. All right, yeah. Thank you, so <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much. This has been the funniest ending of a show, not in the champagne room ever. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, all right. Can't wait to see the TIR Twitter. Peace, y'all. Peace. <laughs>